The following podcast contains police body cam footage of a shooting. Some listeners may find it disturbing. This is Steady Habits, a Connecticut Mirror podcast. I'm John Dankosky. This week, Governor Ned Lamont used an executive order to call for greater accountability in the state police. The Connecticut Chiefs of Police Association issued a 90-day moratorium on law enforcement authorities accepting more military equipment. And the Police Accountability and Transparency Task Force outlined a series of priorities to reform policing in Connecticut. Among these recommendations is an examination of police officers' interaction with individuals with a mental, intellectual, or physical disability. Now, the role of police in responding to calls of people in a mental health crisis has been one of the issues raised by those calling for a defunding of police departments, a reallocation of dollars toward a different kind of response. My name is Kellen Lyons. I'm a reporter uh, on criminal justice matters at the Connecticut Mirror. Kellen's story, Should Police Be Social Workers, digs into this issue. The many hats the police are expected to wear, the training they get in dealing with mental health issues, and the value of that training. His examination of the system is in the context of this nationwide reckoning about police and racism in America. So we're at a time when we're re-examining the role that police officers play in society. Um, Police have had an array of roles thrust upon them, um, where currently they're they're dealing with with a variety of economic and societal failures. They're, they're the ones who are stepping in to fill in the gaps. Um, I wanted to take a slice of that and look at how they're responding to mental health crises um, and examine what their role is, if any, in responding to people who are in, in a mental health crisis. And before we get to some of the details that you've reported in your story about the type of training that police have and and whether or not that training even works, there is this larger overlay of a lot of people across America, including in some Connecticut cities and towns, calling for a a defunding of the police. And what, what they're saying isn't take all the money away from police, although I'm sure some people are saying that. They're basically saying redirect some of the money that goes to traditional policing right now and send it other places, including mental health services. Is that what you're finding as you're as you're watching this this larger defund effort? It is. I, I mean, I think it is worth noting that abolition has long roots in this country since at least the 1940s. Um, for some who have been doing the work on the ground for years, they are literally talking about abolishing the police. And they're, they're doing that too. What they're really doing is challenging us to reexamine do we rely on police to enforce social order and to enforce the laws, or do we create a system and a society where there are enough supports that people don't turn to crime, where we have adequate housing and, and affordable housing, and we have community mental health supports? Um, Josie Duffy Rice, who is the head of The Appeal, the criminal justice podcast, Uh, and the criminal justice website, she had a great tweet that was saying that many of the people who have this knee-jerk reaction to police abolition, they live in a community where abolition for them is is already a reality. The way that people interact with police in in Greenwich is fundamentally different than in the way that police interact with people in, say, Frog Hollow. Um, They and and the same thing is, was said by ta Coates in this interview with Ezra Klein. And he was saying that there are communities where abolition exists. It just doesn't exist for us. And I think that that's a helpful way to reframe it. Because in a lot of ways, well-off communities look at police abolition as a non-starter. Uh, and they say, well, how do I... 
how could how could we get rid of cops? Well, how often do you interact with the police on a day to day basis? I mean, it's it's a fundamentally different interaction than somebody who lives in certain neighborhoods in Hartford and New Haven and Bridgeport than somebody who lives in Greenwich or somebody who lives in Westport. This is Steady Habits. I'm John Dankowski, and I'm talking with Kellen Lyons of the Connecticut Mirror about his story, Should Police Be Social Workers? He begins with a police shooting here in Connecticut. Back in January, 19-year-old Mubarak Suleiman was killed by a state police trooper after a high-speed chase. As you'll hear, Suleiman suffered from serious mental health issues, and he was in the midst of a crisis on the day he was killed. Here's Kellen Lyons once again. He grew up in the New Haven area, and his family had spent a lot of time calling the police um, to respond to him when he was in a mental health crisis. He would he would get manic, and he would leave home, and they needed somebody to help bring him back. So they would call nine one one, and and the the entity that responds first in a nine one one call is, is generally going to be the police. So the New Haven Police Department would routinely pick him up and, and take him to the Yale Psychiatric Hospital Emergency Department, Psychiatric Emergency Department. Um, however, one day earlier this year, in the beginning of middle of January, he was out of town. He was out of New Haven. He was hanging out with some friends in another area. He had been in a manic episode. He had picked up a knife, allegedly, uh, and according to police, had, had threatened people inside of a T-Mobile store. And then he allegedly stole a car and drove on I-95, sped at high speeds, um, and was trying to... Uh, it's not clear where he was going, but he was being pursued by police officers the entirety of the time. Uh, eventually, he was pulled over. Um, police approached him. Uh, there's a body cam video that's online uh, that shows that state police were on the scene. They were they approached him. They were not familiar with him um, and his his condition. Uh, apparently, it's not clear from the body cam footage, but apparently the police had seen that he had a knife. Were calling it out. Um, they were attempting to get into the car, and then after about 30 seconds, after Officer Brian North got out of his vehicle, um, he ended up shooting the 19-year-old. Um, about seven times, and he died. So my story really examines a couple of different things. One of them is what is the training that police receive? Um, and is police work diametrically opposed to responding to mental health crises? Because as I, as I talked to folks who were, I talked to one retired police officer who, or police captain, who is now a training officer at the Connecticut Police Training Academy. And she was saying that not, it's not as though police departments can just rely on knowing um, individuals because you can't share with other police departments that somebody has a mental health condition because that's a violation of HIPAA, um, medical privacy laws. Not to mention there are these patchwork systems throughout the state where not everybody is trained in, in crisis intervention training. Um, not everyone has the adequate training to respond to someone in emotional distress. Before we even get to the training piece of it, th there really is this problem that Connecticut has specifically. And of course, it's not just a Connecticut problem, but because of the patchwork of municipal police forces, because of the small town sizes, it's very easy for someone to cross over town borders 
and to end up in a town where they're not particularly well known. So one of the first things, uh, Kellen, that I, I think your story kind of pokes a hole in is the idea that as long as people stay in their town and the police get to know them, then then the police are a perfectly good way to handle someone who has to be called for mental health issues because that person could very well just go a couple miles to the east or west and then be in an entirely different place. Yeah, and I think the other the other piece was that I was pushing back on whether training would even solve the problem, right? There, there were people who were telling me, medical professionals, who were saying that the very presence, the mere presence of a police officer on the scene can escalate a situation. Um, having somebody show up in a police officer's uniform who is armed can escalate a situation, or it can re-traumatize somebody who has been traumatized because of gun violence in the past, or has had a poor interaction with police officers in the past. Um, it really kind of, it really questions whether there is a space for them to respond to these crises, or, or whether or not we should be taking money from departments and investing it into community mental health resources, because there are two there are two important things to keep in mind. One is that the majority of the time, people who are in a mental health crisis are more likely to be a victim of violence than a perpetrator of violence, or they're more likely to turn that violence inward and not harm others, but harm themselves. And another is that the concept of putting money into community supports in an ideal world, it means that there are enough supports available so somebody is supported enough that they don't get to a space where they are in a crisis. They are not going to reach a state where they have emotional distress. This story that you tell uh, that that this young man was repeatedly interacted with by police, taking him to, to the hospital, that was essentially the, the support in the community. That's what happened when 911 is called. And and the question you seem to be asking is, should police even be the ones who get that phone call? Maybe just police showing up at all is going to be part of the problem with this young man and with, with many others. Yeah, I think it raises the broader question as to why do we rely on cops to do so many different things? Why do we rely on them to wear so many hats? Um, somebody in my, that I quoted in my story said that it was a failure of imagination. We rely on police to do all of these things. You know, Why are we in a space where we feel like the police can solve every issue that we have. Um, like, and I think that that's a broader problem about criminalization in, in American society, nationally and in Connecticut. Um, like over the weekend, Representative Rashida Tlaib tweeted that we should criminalize violence against protesters. You know, leaving aside the value statement of that, I mean, it speaks to this broader question of we criminalize things that we don't agree with. Our knee-jerk reaction is just to assign it a crime and move on. And well, who deals with crime? It's the police. And so that I think is what we're talking about when we're considering alternatives to police responding to these situations, because it allows us to envision a world where we can call a number other than 911 or call 911 and cops aren't the ones who respond. Maybe we can have social workers respond. There are other states and municipalities that do this. There's a program and there are programs in Oregon. Um, San Francisco recently this week said that they were going to no longer have police respond to non-criminal matters. Um, ben Albuquerque said that they were going to use social workers, not police, to respond to 911 mental health calls. There are models for this out there. It's just a question of whether or not it's something that we want to pursue as a state or as municipalities within the state. Let's get back to the training that, that police do get, taking aside for a second whether or not that training is appropriate or whether they're the appropriate people to be showing up training or not. How much training do cops get 
on dealing with people who have mental health issues? And is that anywhere close to uniform across the state? That's a really hard question to answer. Um, that was probably the hardest part of this story because it's tough to nail down an exact number. The best estimate that I could get is roughly 50 of the 900 plus hours of basic training are dedicated to specifically to mental health services. But I've been told that it permeates throughout the program by cops. Now, in addition to that, once they get out of basic training, they're in the field, in field officer training, which they can also get more support. Um, they can also get more mental health training. And then there are a number of private um, classes through private entities that they can take to make sure that they stay certified that also deal explicitly with mental health. So there are options out there. It's not as though they're not getting any training whatsoever, but it is, um, it is small compared to the overall amount of training that police officers receive. And that is, all, that is for all municipal cops. I mean, that there are discussions also that, that it's a patchwork system and that, that some agencies and entities do not receive as much mental health support training. Uh, and that, you know, perhaps we could do something like make it mandatory that those more rural departments or smaller departments are, are getting that training. We saw the, the governor this week come out with an executive order to try to change the way that state police, uh, at least, do some of their policing having to do with restraint and other things that I, I think are being attempted across across the country. Have you talked to anybody in the legislature or in the executive branch, Kellen, who, who feels as though this issue that you're dealing with right now is something that they're going to take up in a legislative session, uh, whether a special session this year or sometime uh, early next year? I have had discussions with people about mental health and as it relates to police officers, and I, I know it's being considered. Um, I've been told by, at the very least, by lawmakers working in the special session bill and by uh, the head of the Police Accountability and Transparency Task Force, that everything is, is really on the table. We are all grappling with police officers' role in our lives here in Connecticut, and it seems as though we are reconsidering the functions that we use them for and the hats that we ask them or require them to wear. So I think everybody is grappling with how that's going to look legislatively um, and they are hashing that out right now in an attempt to get back into special session and pass something in the relatively near future. Kellen Lyons covers criminal justice for the Connecticut Mirror. His story, Should Police Be Social Workers? You can find it at ctmirror.org. Kellen, thanks so much for joining me. I really appreciate it. Thanks for having me. That's it for this week's Steady Habits. Please read Kellen's story and all of his justice reporting at ctmirror.org. Thanks to George Mastrianis and Dave Swanson for the Steady Beats, which were recorded at Legend Studios in Avon, Connecticut. I'm John Dankosky, and we'll see you again soon.